Scale and complexity is skyrocketing in Telco, with introduction of all the IT technologies, hybrid clouds, public clouds, on-prem only large data centers or highly distributed compute pools. They are all created to meet any current or future use cases. From open run coming into the picture, next generation core, 5G and beyond, or AI at the edge. However, there is one big question, how do we keep all of that secure? In the Telco podcast, you will get all the latest news, commentary to them, and interviews with thought leaders from the telecom space. Let's dive right into the next episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Telco podcast. Today our guest is Dave Montana, man of many talents, so I will let him introduce himself because he has so vast history of doing different things that that will be super interesting. Dave, can you give us a little bit background about who you are? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go way back. So. And I believe this kind of pushes my drive today, but I grew up incredibly poor in the north of England and uh, kind of survived on on cereal and hot water for a lot of my time, which really drives, I think it motivates you to go do more things, right? You know, but by the way, it was never like real Kellogg's. It was always the, the copy, like the shop brand. So that was more insulting than having hot water instead of milk. But that really pushes, I think you take one or two paths. You take the path of I will live this life or you take the path of I'm going to better this life. So I've done many things in my life that kind of got me to where I am today. I'm sure there's better options to get there. Number one was I needed more food and I needed more space and time because I've come from a Catholic family and I'm the oldest. There were a lot of us and I wanted just quiet. Uh, So I joined the army, which actually, despite what you may think, achieved some detachment and quietness. Um, And it fed me three times a day at no additional cost. Um, Did all of that, realized I needed a real job and fell into oil and gas, mostly because of my youth being able to to play with some computers. And we talk about that later. But, you know, getting into technology, I'm old enough that it was still quite nascent in terms of what we look at today. Um, Got into that, decided it was interesting, spent some time as a press photographer. Decided that was never going to make any money. Art doesn't make money, as far as I can tell. Um, moved into IT and then fell into oil and gas, actually, like by accident. And was there until six or seven years ago when I joined Red Hat. Um, was selling by that point and running global operations for, for that company for two specific areas. And here I am today at Canonical doing basically the same thing. I was talking to people for money. <laughs> and uh, Macek, I'm also here, right? Uh, the magical co-host, guest co-host, uh, Anton, again. So great. Well, it's nice to have you here, Dave. Um, what was your first role at oil, in oil and gas? You said IT. What was it? They needed somebody. So what's really interesting about oil and gas IT is there's almost zero value to an IT person in an oil and gas company. I say almost. It's massively increasing today. But at that time, which was more than 10 years ago, the oil and gas companies would rather spend money on a geologist because they add real value, right? Whereas an IT guy was always perceived as, hey, I've got a virus, come brush it away. You know, like bring the big broom. Mm. Um, they outsource a lot of that IT. So they, uh, I, I actually started with a company called BG Group, um, was an offshoot from British Gas based out of the UK. Their servicing, they outsourced all of their servicing. They're quite intelligent about it because they went, hey, we need a bunch of IT support, but the IT support needs to be for these geologists and reservoir engineers. So it's not like, hey, please reset my password. It's I'm using this very expensive workstation, very expensive tool. How do I do X or Y? 
So we had to have some knowledge of geology, geophysics, reservoir engineering, as well as knowledge of IT. And they outsourced it to a company called Schlumberger. Schlumberger is not that well known uh, outside of the industry, but everyone knows Halliburton. And it's five times bigger than Halliburton and then direct competitor to Halliburton. Mm -hmm. So they outsourced to Schlumberger, this oil and gas company. And we basically provided at the time um, technologies and ways to fix things that we were actually motivated on doing things different ways and coming up with innovation projects. And that's how we were paid. And like our whole plan was come up with a new innovation to do something for company X and deliver it and get time to oil reduced. Because oil and gas companies care about time to oil, which is why they spend more money on a guy that drills a hole than a guy that has the technology to find the hole. So it's kind of interesting, but that's how I started is coming in and looking at very specific software technologies which were almost equally divided between Linux and Windows around the business of finding and then maximizing the extraction of fossil fuels. Were you coding or system administration or? A little bit of system administration. Coding is not my strong suit whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that is one of the most interesting projects actually is nothing to do with what people would confirm like as traditional IT. It's more workplace engineering. But they use these pieces of software most of the workstations that have two workstations under the desk and these are thirty thousand dollar workstations and they've got multiple cores at the time it was like the best intel cpu you could buy they were using a terabyte of ram before it was even really possible to do so we did a lot of tricks with uh sandisk and companies like that to kind of fake the ram and make extra swap space and, and code mm-hmm. and whatnot the idea is you're bringing in these 40 terabyte files which now they're a lot larger than that actually, but at the time they were about 40 terabytes for a single field and you go look at it and you have to move through this field seamlessly. They were like, hey, go solve that problem. Go solve this uniqueness. Linux workstations are inherently better at that. They're better at memory management, better at using resources, but the main product is and and was at that time still on Windows. Mm. Okay. Um, We have like a famous question now. We're making, or I'm making it famous and Maciek is always telling me that this question maybe we should skip it skip it but oh, no. <laughs> no oh yeah okay i have to ask you that question sometime and see what you say i haven't done it um what's your favorite ninja turtle which one interestingly in england ninja was a word that was like deemed too offensive so the hero turtles in okay england, okay um <laughs> which always made me laugh because all of the material was always ninja turtles i'm going to say Raphael, and it's actually a hundred percent based on like not the colors. It's always like I have favorite weapons as a kid. That's the same two out of two <laughs> yeah. now. Our last guest, uh, Roman Dodin, he also said that, uh-huh. and it was because of the weapons. Okay, so uh, coming back to the main topic that we have. So, how long have you been actually working with open source? Because you started in oil and gas when everything or almost everything was proprietary. So how many years ago it started to be become like adopters of open source? Open source has kind of always been there in oil and gas in a very small way. Um, because what usually happens, and it still happens today actually, is three guys in a shed decide they want to create a better way to come up with an algorithm to find you know more oil and gas or a different computational fluid dynamics algorithm or something, right? And they'll usually do that and code that in open source technologies because it's more accessible, it's easier, it, it comes up. The other thing to remember as well about this industry is that if you slow somebody down by 1%, 2%, that really does equal money because it's time to oil. 
So the longer it takes them to actually drill and extract, they're losing money every day. So open source has always been there in a very small kind of path. And there's a, a really famous interpretation tool. It's like the, there are three tools that are like the Photoshop of oil and gas, right? So if you think of them as like Photoshop and um, I don't know, what's that, another GIMP, but also like remember PaintShop Pro from the old days, right? Mm -hmm. This was like the PaintShop Pro and it was called OpenDetect. And it was a Linux-based, fully open-sourced interpretation tool. It's like the Photoshop of oil and gas. There was a lot of users of that in, in general, but in each company, you might have 400 users of the main product, which is called Petrel, and maybe 10 users of OpenDetect because they, they had different algorithms and they were developed in the community style. And they were like, these algorithms were better and they would get better results and they were more reliable results. And that, that was really the start of open source in that industry because people realized the power of the community and the power of taking somebody else that may be very disassociated geographically or even culturally, especially with oil and gas, and they looked at it a different way and went, hey, I can contribute this back. Same model existed in, and still does with OpenDetect, which is there's a free version and a paid version. What's the difference? Well, actually, in, in there's a few features, but mostly support. Mm. So it's always been there, but in very small pieces. Now it's really taking off. I mean, if we look at open source and oil and gas today and energy in general, I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole oil and gas because we got to look at utilities and how we deliver that. And then we got to look at renewables and, and how we're doing the, the energy transformation. Open source has really taken over. Right. Okay. And how do people actually make money out of open source? Because you are in the sales business for a long time. So obviously your job is to make money. So how does it look like in general in that kind of industry? I'm going to generalize this and tell you like all industries, I guess, because the, the answer is the same, but it blows people's minds when you kind of tell them how you make money in open source, because by its very nature, it's available and accessible to everyone. Mm. And I always kind of explain to people when I'm talking about sales, like my sales team and the sales teams that work in open source in any company, they're some of the best sellers in the world because they're literally selling something that you can get on the internet for free. That also is the key as to how to get paid for it, right? But kind of, I can get something, I don't need to pay for it. It's available to me at any point. Well, how do you then go sell that? You have to add some value to that story. The value to that story comes around certification in some respects. Uh, it comes around the liability shift in most. So if we boil down open source sales, and a lot of salespeople will hate me for saying this, but it's an absolutely true statement. We sell insurance, right? Like, what are you buying? You buy a support contract when you buy open source, but when you pay for open source product today, you have to pay whether or not you use that support. So it's really like an insurance, you know? It's like, hey, it's much better than that. It's like, you know, car insurance is, <laughs> you know, we'll do this and we'll give you really poor service. We're experts at giving very, very good service back in return. But how do you sell it is you are selling something that somebody needs because of a liability shift for the most part. That liability shift could be certified liability shift like FIPS enabled. So the US government has a series of certifications that says I need X, Y, and Z to be done. So we will sell them that product that is separate from the community that gives us canonical as a layer that says we, we will do this and we'll make sure it's patched and we'll make sure it meets all of these requirements. The other thing is if, if we look at multiple different security aspects, 
let's say we all ran a company and we were using only open source and only community. And then something happened, there was a security breach or some data got out or we contravened like GDPR here over in Europe. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, like, why did this happen? You're the IT guy, you run IT, why did it happen? You are downloaded this off the internet. I mean, how long is that job gonna last, right? So yeah, yeah. you liability shift to a professional provider of support and knowledge. And the other thing is, and this is becoming increasingly less so, and I'm glad to see it, but back in the proprietary days, you could find support people for Microsoft all over the world. You couldn't find that same person. I mean, I remember looking for Linux admins in Nigeria for an oil and gas project, and there wasn't any that weren't already gainfully employed, you know, but it was like kind of under a hundred people in an entire country that had that skill set. So it's basically like, you know, if you don't have insurance, you, it's hard to sleep at night. And yeah. if you're the IT administrator, and I've been one myself, actually, um, I like to sleep at night. So you have somebody to like back you up and yeah. you, you basically, you know, you can get certifications and things like that. And it's interesting that you said that it didn't really exist um, for a long time. So do you think the state of play today is much better? Like, obviously, there's us, Canonical. How do, you, how do you feel about the state of the industry in general? We are seeing wholesale moves, and it's why I remain in this. In there's many reasons I remain in this industry, but one of those is I need to be able to pay my bills, right? Mm -hmm. And to do that, I need to be able to sell something, and I need to have a market to be able to sell it to. We're only seeing this market grow. Open source adoption in every area I'm seeing is just absolutely exploding. Companies that are in spaces like oil and gas or financial services are traditionally behind everybody else because they don't want to take risk. Risk is a problem. Um, even they are moving towards open source in a big way. We've seen some huge uh, investments and time and money spent into open source in a lot of industries that are traditionally behind, led by a lot of companies, you know, a lot of industries that are traditionally in front. You know, if you start looking at blockchain and things like that, right? Find me someone that's not using an open source solution to provide that. Um, that's interesting in itself as well because that's being adopted across multiple areas of oil and gas for essentially the, the purpose it was built, which is a ledger, but yeah. literally to combat crime. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're seeing that people are looking at open source technologies and also the value of, hey, I have a problem, but I don't have the people in my own organization to solve this problem. And then there's some guy that lives in his mama's basement that drinks like Mountain Dew, Code Red, right? At 2 a.m. that like solves this problem. Mm. And he's nice enough to give this back to the community and then everyone can benefit from this. I believe that enterprises are finally seeing that value. And I say I believe, I see the numbers. Like we're seeing more and more adoption of it. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> since this is the Telco podcast, uh, we're a bit interested, Machek and I was very interested in networks. Um, can you tell us a bit about the types of networks that, that you've seen in oil and gas and like the kind of conditions they were in and what kinds of equipment it was and things like that? I got some really interesting stuff I've seen over my time uh, because obviously everything has to be connected. What's really, really interesting is if you go look up the patent for the first ever remote connected like IoT device, Conrad Schlumberger in the 1800s, in the mid 1800s. Um, and he wow. created a geophone. And what that was, it was basically a remote, and it used a wire, right? It wasn't wireless, <laughs> but it was a remote device that was designed to measure the, a lot of different things, mostly impedance in the original one, right? So we can tell kind of what's underground. 
Um, and they were all interconnected. So when you look at geophones, not just one, there's usually hundreds, thousands in some cases, but hundreds of these geophones. And they build a picture of what you're looking at in the subsurface. So oil and gas as an industry can make a claim that they invented the concept of you know disconnected product and IoT. Um, so it's actually really interesting to start looking at that because you're like, well, what did they do? And are they at the forefront of this? And the answer is no, they're not because they're very risk averse. So I have personally worked with a company I will not name that still runs DOS on all of their IoT devices. They run on really old computers and they have a budget for 8-bit ISA cards to go buy from eBay. Wow. Um, so they'll <laughs> buy like these old, old cards, like the old 8-bit VGAs and the old network cards. That yeah. were, and they'll go do that because it works. Right. And the risk of replacing that is worse than the risk of at this point in time of getting a new solution. Networking wise, it gets really, really interesting in refineries because almost everything is connected in a refinery. Mm -hmm. You've got flow meters, you've got pipes that, that are doing something, you've got density measurements, you've got all kinds of stuff. The drilling rig as well. The drilling rig is one of the most connected products on earth in terms of how many things it's measuring at once, what it then needs to do with like digital twin and how it needs to push that out and that's where it gets really, really interesting in how, networking. How are they connected today? So today, a lot of it is local area network, which is usually wireless these days. Completely unsecured wireless. Like if you go to any rig in the Gulf of Mexico, there's no pass passwords on anything, right? Um, and all of the products communicate because they're very geographically limited. You know, mm -hmm. who's going to go? Who's going to get onto the rig? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it gets even more interesting because people like BP put fiber to some of their bigger rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a huge investment. They actually, uh, I'm, I know I'm going around the houses because this kind of it sets the scene, but BP put these fiber connectors in and they rent it out to other providers in the area. Um, and then, of course, they have to have very resilient products because you're in very, very harsh conditions. You're in salt air, you're in you know storms all of the time. They're in a hurricane area. So for more than half the year, they can be absolutely battered as a product. So there's actually a whole bunch of products that are specifically hardened for oil and gas use. A whole bunch of Do you have any kind of like certification that is required to put a the product there or are you actually weatherproofing it because there is a business need and that's it? Like how much, how big is the regulation in the industry? Regulation is poor in the industry in general. There isn't much. There are some standards for communication types but in reality the only certification certification that you know most people will look at that is a regulated thing is the explosive side of life because when you're using perforating guns and you've got shape charges the all of the cell phones have to be explosives you know safe certified there's certain things that have to be done to the products that are there in reality most of it is driven by like hey i need to weatherproof this or i need to move it or it needed to be incredibly resilient. Because if you look at where the majority of oil and gas is, and you overlay that map onto like a map of the world, and then you overlay a political instability map, it's pretty much the same, right? Mm. So they need to make products that are incredibly resilient, will not break in any way, as in physically or software-wise, and that they can update as needed, pull data as needed. Because when I'm drilling, if I'm physically drilling, we have a thing called measurement model drilling and the rotary steerable drilling, right? So long gone are the days of like drill a hole as straight as you can. We actually have these machines now that can follow the best path and that's all modeled beforehand. 
Well, that all needs to communicate back. And they use a lot of wireless technologies. One of the more interesting technologies is, and they've done this for probably 30 years or so now, is using the fluid in the hole to send binary data back. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really basic. Well, I wonder what kind of modulation technique they're using for that. And that I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to look because when you go in and you see the, and again, the 8-bit cards, you see all these like basic serial converters, you know, like the 24-pin serial connectors? Yeah. And people are connecting those, and I'm like, wow, I'm like, it's going back in time. Mm. Um, so they go from very basic to very complex, and, uh, and we'll kind of hit upon telco, which is, so that basic is invented geophones have been using that technology ever since, and we're the first kind of pioneer, hey, we need to get remote data. And then we need to bring that back to the people that are interpreting. So you can collect the data. So there's an unknown to drilling an, an oil field. Like the first thing is called a wildcat, right? Like, hey, I think there's something in here. We'll go drill a hole. Oh, there is something in here, right? But somebody's modeled what they thought was in there, a geologist, a geophysicist, and then, you know, they've gone, this is the stratigraphy. This is what, like, the permeability, like the porosity. The likelihood of something. Exactly. Being mm -hmm. um, it's called uncertainty analysis inside the industry. And they're like, hey, the less uncertain I am, the better I am. When they do that, they then have to go get the things that are certain, which is when I drill a hole, is that actually true? Well, it's never exactly the same, right? It's always slightly different. There could be depth differences. There could be changes in the rock. The, there could be something where it, it wasn't the correct seal and we don't have anything. Um, they need to get that data back as quickly and as easily as possible to the interpreters that work from an office so they can modify that guess, which is a very like complex guess. It's, it's more an art. There's a lot of science, but there's a lot of art to it too. They modify that guess based on the real-world data they're getting back from the field and then resend back, hey, you were drilling in this direction. We think you'll get a better result if you move X degrees that way and go up or down. So real-time feedback of that data is very, very important. So communications, which was traditionally satellite, and that's now changing, but satcoms, latency wasn't a problem because you know, you've got a long time to drill these things, but they were using that to try and condense the data. They're like some of the first users of like an edge use case, right? Like that, hey, we need, we've got a bunch of data we've got to compute. We need to compute it, only send back what the interpreter needs they'll redo the interpretation. They only need to send back the differential to tell us where we now need to drill because they got very, very high latency, low bandwidth connections. Things are changing now with 5G yeah. and they want their own private networks mm -hmm. because they're in areas, like I said, that are politically unstable where a cell service provider may not be. Yep. So now a lot of oil and gas companies have literally started to look at how do we become our so own telco. Uh, are they going to do things like, you know, <clears throat> running their own local HPC cluster or something at the site and able to process data immediately and, and you know, take actions there? That's absolutely been a thing for probably the last 10 or so years. Really interesting because they were some of the early adopters of uh, my very first open source project in the oil and gas world was on OpenStack. Um, we, we realized we weren't clever enough and we brought in multiple different companies starting with Mirandis to help us with that, right? But we looked at it and went, hey, we have a bunch of hardware in like a drilling rig or on a, uh, a drill ship or wherever. And it's basically one rack maximum is what we've got space for. Yeah. So how do we maximize that we might need to run some HPC on this locally to make a better answer, but then I need to run my drilling operation software and then I need to run my interpretation software, but I've only got a limited set. So they were really the first people that, that I know of certainly to look at this and go, how do we repurpose this hardware very, very quickly? 
they're also the first people as a result to kind of look at containerization and go, well, maybe this is going to solve even more problems. Um, but HPC in the field, the largest HPC instances, commercial instances in the world are all owned by oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them won't speak about how big it is. BP are the most public about the size of their HPC operation. And you can see a lot of information and commercial wise, if you look at the largest HPC in the world, it's nearly always in a university or as a, like an example set, oh look, we built something cool. You want to find the people that are actually using it, 600, 700,000 plus nodes for one job that, and these jobs run for multiple months usually. And they have multiple of those clusters to run multiple jobs for multiple months. Um, that's oil and gas. The, yeah. the HPC operation I used to look after was uh, in Houston, Texas, had two dedicated substations and the local power operator would come to us and we would vice versa go to them when we needed to do something because we'd be like, hey, we're about to really change our power consumption. <laughs> and they would do the same. As a result, what we're finding now with GPUs and things like that is we can take some of this information and do that on the field, reducing the load on the HPC center. So this edge use case and compute on an edge is very, very much a thing. Right. Okay, and basically, if you have this kind of an oil rigs far away from land, so fiber connection is in some of the places, but are you actually using satellite backlinks when that's not possible, or how the setup looks like? Like, there are not that many like mobile operators on the North Sea, right? So uh, you need to have a connectivity to HQ somehow to send those data. There's a lot of technology they're using from microwave, a lot of microwave in, in African uh, operations. It's just easy, like they can kind of shoot it distance. And there's, I wouldn't want to stand in front of one of these microwaves, let me tell you, because like they're going pretty far. Um, yeah, they're shooting like, um, you know, up to 10 gigabits per second on some of those things. It's huge, huge investment. Yeah. Um, so they still exist. They're being, and this is where it's going to get really interesting with things like, um, you know, the, the Elon Musk examples, you know, of, hey, you can now get this anywhere, right? Mm. Um, Starlink. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what really happens and if com- like commercial companies adopt Starlink or something like Starlink. Because there's a few companies that have been competing, they've been trying to do this for a while, but haven't had the funding to kind of make it a thing. But microwaves... But Amazon is going now with Krupier, right? So they have a funding, I think. <laughs> they, I, I really want to see the technology of this because microwave and cell service where it's available has been a thing for a long time. Satellite is very expensive for the oil and gas companies and the amount of data they're moving doesn't lend itself well to satellite data because mm. it's huge amounts of volume. So they create their own telcos. Like one of the most disconnected places, weirdly enough, is West Texas. Right? There's other places that have got way better connectivity than West Texas, but West Texas, the, anyone that's driven through West Texas knows you've got like 14 hours of no service. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the North Sea um, off the coast of, of Norway, I used to work um, when I was at Alcatel Lucent uh, with the, I can't remember which operator it was, but they'd like built a ring network out to all of their oil rigs out in the sea. So they took the effort to lay the fiber and then they were actually running their own LTE network uh-huh. on those things for their own purposes. So they were like mobile operator and like fixed line. That's getting more and more common because yeah. when you think about it, now the technology is getting accessible. It was horrendously expensive, right? That was all well and good when oil was $120 a barrel. Now, now that we have a very fluctuating market, they need things that can scale. 
So with open source versions of mobile technologies like Open Run Play and all the stuff around Magma and so on, is this something that is useful for the industry? Very much so. Not only in like a remote operation site, but also, hey, I want to enable all of the IoT devices in my refinery, or I want to track something through its midstream. The other thing with that we get with new mobile technologies is we can inbuilt, we can build in security. If you think about it, a lot of countries' net worth as such depends on its oil and gas reserves. There are multiple countries in the world where its gross domestic product is absolutely just fossil fuel based. That is their worth of it as a country to the rest of the, you know, to its trading power. I don't want to get, they don't want that to get out. They will not adopt cloud. There's multiple Middle Eastern countries that will not go to Google or Amazon AWS. They'll do their own thing. By having open source technology, it allows you to create your own network that can do things you couldn't do before. And essentially, especially with 5G, like group those, those things together. And now I can be my own telco. I can have my own broadband. I can have all of this comms and it can be secure. Bringing in things like smart, smart NICs as well and be like, hey, I can do a lot more. We're going to see a lot more of that as, as they start to adopt it. But like I said, they're a risk-based industry. They have to see other people do it first. I think it's interesting, and I, I won't touch on politics at all, I promise. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, energy security, essentially, like even for the, not just for the producers, but the consumers, it's important for all of us. Everything that you see around you is basically built using oil and gas, I think. Um, but now we are seeing some like way. a shift and transformation towards like renewable energy and green energy and so yeah. on. So how is IT transformation included into this game and basically how open source software and in general more ITification of the industry is helping to move to fossil fuels, uh, to, to sorry, fossil out free. from fossil fuels. To fossil free. Yeah. yeah. That's... I believe that we sat here and the people listening to this or who are in this age in the world, right? We're at the right place at the right time for this because everyone is looking at it now in terms of, hey, this isn't sustainable. There, there are a lot of reserves, you know, to, to pay credit to the people in the industry that, you know, I came from. We're not going to easily run out of fossil fuels. It mm. would take a lot. You know, there's, we keep finding more and more. We, we keep being yeah, able to extract more We're going to have other problems first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. However... Is the world going to be a better place if we reduce reliance on fossil fuels? It absolutely is. So therefore, we should be doing that. Mm. They, a lot of the companies have started to look, a lot of the big oil and gas companies have started to look at, well, how do we go, go carbon net zero? So BP and Shell have made statements about that. Uh, companies like Schlumberger, that are the world's largest oil field services, they've uh, hired dig digital transformation and energy transformation experts and teams and what we look at today as well, like I said, in the old days, drilling a hole was more important than the IT. It's absolutely the opposite way around these days. They're looking and going, well, I can drill less holes if I've got great IT and I can be more effective and I can do more things. And there's a lot of technology we can use to model things. Like if we want to use natural gas pipelines to move hydrogen as well, which is a thing that we've been trialing is, hey, what if 20% of that pipeline contains hydrogen? Now we can separate it at the other end. How do we model that? How do we look at the flow and the fluid dynamics? Technology enables us to see without spending huge amounts of money, is this possible? Is it feasible? Does it have a return on investment? Is it sensible? So they're adopting open source in a huge way because they want to be able to try things before they massively invest. And the CICD methodology and our like agile technologies that we've used in software development for years 
and now actually being picked up and adopted by major manufacturers in their own operations, not just in software. Yeah. Are there any other applications that you see? Like, um, I know you're into machine learning and, and HPC clusters and stuff. Like, you're, you're like kind of, I look up to you as an HPC knowledge source. Um, are there any other applications in clean energy, you know, like balancing solar panels or like running kubeflow to like, you know, discover how to optimize an operation? That's a huge thing. And, I, and that's super interesting uh, area of, of interest for me because it's, it's kind of early in energy's adoption of things like AIML, but honestly, in terms of applicability, they should be spending more time on it. Um, early stage things are like, hey, we've got a bunch of people looking at this that use knowledge of the earth, like geologists, to you know, essentially go in and model a fault, right? What's it gonna look like? You know, where does it go? Well, we can use AIML to look at this and go, you know what? If I look at historic, historical data, I look at projected data and I do multiple realization on that. I think it's here. Mr. You know, Mr. Mrs. Human, can you come check? Um, so people are using that in early stages now to make less onus on the geologist, geophysicist, reservoir engineer, and, and kind of create a model that looks fairly good up until that point. But the other big thing is uh, we're seeing a lot in the actual operations. like. Safety is a big thing in these industries, right? You know, you, you need to be safe. You can't, you know, in the old days for the North Sea, especially, I grew up on the Northeast coast of England and a lot of my, a lot of my parents' friends worked in the industry and had like missing fingers and, you know, things like, you are like, man, don't see that anymore. And it's because we put a, a large focus on safety. Augmented reality is getting a big thing too. And then we need going back to telco, right? Like training for training and things perhaps. Training and training. in the field. So Schlumberger did a big project. It ultimately wasn't adopted, but there's a lot more people doing a lot more things now. The technology, they kind of started too early, but they got together with Google and Google Glass and went, how can we do an augmented reality piece for like, hey, this thing is hot, don't touch it, you know? Um, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and looking at how you model, and then we look at AI under sea. When you're on the seabed and you're creating the actual... So the thing you see above the sea is sending a pipe down to the bottom of the, you know, goes onto the seabed and then you drill from the seabed. When you're finished drilling that with a big rig, you see, you then produce. Well, then those things move and you've just got a bunch of pipes and clever machinery that's on the seabed and goes into a pipeline. Modeling that and where that sits and how that works can absolutely be done by AI and ML workloads in terms of like, hey, what are, what are the realizations I can do here? What are, how can I make this more effective? Mm -hmm. How can I move logistically these products and will they fit together? So it's, it gets really, really interesting. What about the kettle story that you told me about? That's also super, like, that's very English. So I'm originally English despite this messed up accent because I live in America now. Um, and lived here in Denmark for a little while too, which I don't think helped. Um, but... In England, when there's large football matches or very like interesting to the English people, TV shows like, you know, a very specific Coronation Street EastEnders and all this kind of stuff, there's huge drains on the local power grid because everyone in England, England's famous for like tea. You know, we had a whole war with America over that very thing, right? Um, hey, we said no politics. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine when it's 300 year old politics, yeah. I'm sure. Um, but when they do that, they all go turn on these three kilowatt kettles. Like modern kettles, 
I've not seen one under three kilowatts, right? So every single household that's watching this thing goes and turns on a three kilowatt kettle at the same time because they're waiting for a break. It's waiting for halftime at the football match or like a break, a commercial break in the TV show. And the English utility companies actually had to start to model that manually mm. of, hey, we're going to get a huge drain on our power services, so we need to increase the capacity for this period of time. With AI now, they're actually using that to be like, hey, we didn't necessarily know this was a thing, but now we might need to do this. So when you get major announcements, you know, it could be political based or it could be like, hey, you know, just let's get together and we're going to announce this new product. They're like, well, everyone's going to watch that or listen to that or be on the Internet for that. And we're going to get in a drain because they're all going to want to go get a cup of tea, which blows my mind that, you know, it's kind of that simple, but that complex. Yeah. Um, and that modeling has been massively adopted by industrial one of the things I found even more interesting, and I didn't know this until maybe five years ago, John Deere, huge creators of combine harvesters and other products, tractors and stuff. In the US, it, it, again, I come from a tiny island. I come from England where kind of everything's about the same, right? It's not very big. You can fit many Englands into the United States, right? So this didn't occur to me until I moved to the US and watched it happen. John Deere is a massive user of AIML. And I was like, why? And it turns out that the harvesting of certain things moves with the weather patterns. So they've got to model the weather. They've got to model where the harvesting is going to happen, at what point and where. And very few people buy combine harvesters, so they all get rendered. Then they've got to have service techs. Then they've got to put all of the product there. Then they know logistically they've got to get them somewhere else. So they have these huge HPC clusters that are getting cleverer every day mm-hmm. on how do we model where we need our product to be those, and when. And those tractors are starting to drive them, or they're, they're working on driving them themselves, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of them have driven themselves based on GPS uh, for a long time now. And, you know, you see people sitting in an air-conditioned box just living the best life. Um, the technology is getting better now where it can follow certain pathways and and then it knows where your rows need to be or what the width of your product is so that essentially when you look at a field you'll see gaps right and those gaps are for vehicles to go through and be able to put uh, pesticides on and stuff like that well now they can model all of that and then model it for well when do I then need service intervals and what weather's happened you know going back to oil and gas again predictive maintenance absolutely Mm. that's huge in oil and gas there's actually a company there's, there's several companies, but one I know well called Hydrotite, whose entire business is on fastening things. But they use weather modeling. They're like, hey, at this particular spot, it got hot and then cold. And what products are we using? What metals are we using in those fasteners? Therefore, how do they react to that hot and cold? What was the was the salt water? Yeah, ship out the parts already uh-huh. in advance. And yeah. tell a guy to go physically wrench on it. I'm like, this is incredible. Like, we're living in the future yeah. right now. So when do you expect to see basically that fully automated and drone with a wrench flying in and tightening the screws? <laughs> I'd love to see that. I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but it probably will because we're in a technolo- technological revolution, in my opinion. But we've already replaced helicopter pipeline inspections now with fully automated drone inspections. And then we use um, essentially image recognition software to go, hey, you know, this pipeline has always looked like this. Now it looks like that. Oh, that's a hole. You know, that's a thing. And then they have these products called pigs. And they go down a pipeline on the inside and clean things and repair stuff and all that. So now they know, they use a drone to know where to send a pig. 
That's really cool. I know yeah. they're doing this for uh, power lines as well. Like power Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. Out in the middle of Sweden, for example, is a huge geography in the middle of the forest, and they're sending drones down, either man, like controlled by a person, or now becoming autonomous as well, and just uh, checking if, you know, those, you know, the things where they're attaching to the lines and stuff are, are cracked or broken, or there's a tree that's starting to come down. Um, pretty awesome productivity gains there. So I also have some, like, security angle questions. How often do like oil rigs and refineries try try to being hacked? Basically, do you get a lot of that? Like, is security important, or because the like oil rigs are in the middle of the sea, so probably if you are hacking it, it's like a pretty complex operation with ships and stuff. But uh, for a refinery in the city, do you get a lot of people trying to get in, mess around with it, and so on, or not Ev- really? every single day, thousands of times every single day to the point where some of the best security professionals I know were employed by the oil and gas companies. Um, in fact, one of them, a personal friend of mine, has now created a bunch of security certifications and then become an industry standard. And he has, I think, you know, a, a 10 or 11 specific certification standards and training courses to his name. Um, and they now mount reactive attacks to those and feed incorrect data. Uh, so it's getting even more interesting because, like I said earlier, a lot of the value of you know a product is is in how many reserves you have, what are you moving now, what's going on, what does the market look like. So they are subject every single day, and they're getting to the point where they're kind of feeding misinformation back into these hacks, so they can they're playing a very political game, right? A lot of these people, um, and the security onus. It, what's really interesting is if we take BP or Shell or you know any other large oil and gas operator, it would be very unusual for them to operate their own drilling operation. It's usually subbed out to Slamaje, Halliburton, or other operators because they, they make their money in more interesting ways. Um, those operators, they take on that security liability, so they need to be 100% on top of that security. It is a subject that would you could probably have somebody talking there for multiple hours because there are so many attacks, so many instances of this because it's such an important commodity in the world. I don't know, maybe you know, maybe people are hacking into companies that trade in pork bellies, another real commodity, right? Maybe there's a bunch of coffee companies being hacked every day. I don't know that, but for sure, oil and gas, one of the largest traders commodities on the world, people want that information. Coffee is almost like a utility as well these days, isn't it? Well, it's a real traded commodity. I mean, it's a... Okay, so I think we'll be closing for today. Thank you very much, Dave, for sharing your knowledge and experience and a lot of fun stories. Is there anything that you want to do as final comments? Now you put me on the spot because I can't think of any. Because it's so interesting especially telco technologies and how they're going to enable things to connect. 5G is one of the more interesting things, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep an eye out for additional podcasts. And, and 5G applications into enterprises where I think we're going to see huge explosions. Looking forward to hearing about the first Magma deployments and Open RAN deployments out there on oil rigs. Yeah, and you can also uh, look out for the next telco-related podcast together with Dave, actually by subscribing to our channel. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Talco podcast. We would appreciate if you share this episode with your friends and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If there is anything you want to listen about, ping me or Anton on LinkedIn or Twitter.
And as always, have a great day.